Amen. I want to encourage you also as you pray this week that you might uh, remember the firefighters that are in the process of protecting our homes and our church in this area, unfortunately close to us. Uh, think of the folks that uh, are affiliated with the even Hearst Castle. As that place has been closed, I don't remember personally, I don't remember it ever being closed before. <laughs> Uh, but it's been closed yesterday. It's closed today. Uh, they've even considered how to evacuate some of the valuable things from there. But also, I think our folks that live in the San Simeon area have been told to be prepared. They're not told to evacuate yet, but they have been told to be prepared. We have been told to be prepared. One day, our Lord and Savior will be back among us, and he'll be taking us home. We're to be prepared for that time. So today we're going to open the scripture. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles, if you are one that likes to follow along in your own Bible, to Acts chapter 11. Have any of you ever had an appointment that uh, you had to go to or some obligation you had to make that you really didn't want to go? Anybody feel that way about the dentist? (laughs) Yeah, or maybe traffic court. Uh, no, no, no. I've never been there. <laughs> or maybe, maybe you didn't want to go to work because you knew layoffs were coming, and you just didn't you didn't want to go and hear any bad news. Well, those can all be difficult uh, times, difficult situations to be in. Every every step toward the dentist's door <laughs> causes your dread to go up. Uh, all you want to do is turn and go the other way. And I won't make that confession, but imagine for yourself, I, I don't like to go to the dentist. Fortunately, I've had good teeth all my life, but I don't like to go to the dentist. And I think maybe when Peter was first summoned uh, to Joppa, or from Joppa to Caesarea, that he kind of felt that way. He was, he was asked to come by a, a Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius. Now, we talked last week about how Jews didn't visit in the homes of Gentiles. And they didn't, they didn't just fellowship with Gentiles freely. And yet, Peter felt called of the Lord to respond to this call. Back in Acts, uh, Peter had just had an intense vision that showed him that the Gentiles were no longer to be thought of as unclean. Peter was the only one, of course, that got this vision. But as he traveled to Caesarea, he had six Jewish friends that were traveling with him. And they were probably going to be shocked by what they were about to witness and what they were about to learn. Peter was on his way to what would amount to being a watershed event in the life of the new church. Predictably, when Jerusalem heard that Peter had been invited to a Gentile home and that he had invited the Gentiles to believe Scripture and to believe in God, that God had given him the gift of the Holy Spirit, they responded in, well, a less than appropriate fashion. They didn't respond well. Today in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 11, we see that they actually confront Peter with some things. 
First, in the first three verses, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That was their accusation. Socializing with Gentiles in Caesarea. Entering a Gentile home. Eating with them. Huh. We don't know how long after Peter's visit with Cornelius that this took place or how the believers in Jerusalem even heard about it. But when Peter went to Jerusalem, they were ready for him. And interestingly, their first complaint was not that Gentiles had become Christians, but it was that Peter had had a meal with these Gentiles. Does that ring a bell of familiarity? Like maybe Luke chapter 15, verse 2, when they criticized Christ. said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, that was what the uh, remaining apostles said. and They were sounding like the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 15 of, of, of Luke. They were talking about Jesus. And I would suppose maybe Peter took a little comfort in the company that he kept. But then he moves on there to clarify what happened, beginning in verse 4. It says, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. In other words, precisely. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me, Go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Peter is confronted and accused by the believers in Jerusalem, by his, his peers, but he doesn't engage them in debate. He just gives them the complete rundown of what actually happened. In verse 4, Luke, who is the author here of, of Acts, uses the word cathexis which is translated in order. In the NIV, it says Peter told them precisely what happened in Caesarea. And then in verse 12, Peter made sure that they knew he had gone to Caesarea in direct obedience to the Holy Spirit and that he was not the only witness to what happened there. He had six brothers with him from Joppa that were also witnesses. And then we see his conclusions that he drew from this, starting at verse 15. 
He ended with two conclusions, the first of which is the Gentiles had received the same spirit that the Jews had received. Again, reading beginning at verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? (laughs) Peter felt put in his place. He saw his position there. And we see here that Acts 2, Pentecost, was more or less repeated here in Acts 10 when the Holy Spirit came upon those who believed in Cornelius' household. This time it was Gentiles, not Jews. And the upper room in Jerusalem was Cornelius' home in Caesarea. Peter told his fellow leaders now in Jerusalem, he said, it may not fit in our little theological box, but it would appear God's doing something new. He's not just speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to everyone, including the Gentiles. Then he comes up with his second conclusion. The Gentiles had received the same salvation as the Jews. Verse 18. See, not only did the Gentiles receive the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the Jews had received, they also received the same salvation. The Jewish leaders apparently agreed with Peter's conclusion with their closing statement. When they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life, that leads to eternal life. Now this was no small thing for them to admit. For a group of Jews who had always felt superior to the Gentiles. Now in the next couple of verses we see changes were also now happening in this new church at Antioch. Luke gives us a a quick word about the church at Antioch and the progress that was being made in spreading the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles. And it speaks at first they were reaching Jews in foreign lands. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. Verse 19 here recalls that many Jews were driven out of Jerusalem with the persecution that followed Stephen's martyrdom. And at first they preached only to the Jews. They didn't know about this revelation that, uh, about the Gentiles that Peter would soon receive at Caesarea yet. But then it says they began reaching Gentiles in foreign lands. Some Jews from Cyrene and Cyprus found their way to Antioch where they preached to the Gentiles, or as they were known there, the Hellenists, who they found there. Verses 20 and 21 tells us, But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed Turn to the Lord. So the word was getting out. Amen? Amen. 
And it was getting out, the gospel was getting out to Gentiles as well as the Jews. And the Gentiles were responding to that word. And there is where we now come upon an old friend. Since we met him in Acts chapter 4, and a brief mention of him in Paul's introduction to the leaders in Jerusalem in Acts 9, we haven't seen much of Barnabas. But here we see him again. He's in in connection with the, the gospel being preached to the Gentiles at Antioch. And we see Barnabas's introduction to the church at Antioch. When the news finally arrived in Jerusalem that the Gentiles were responding to the gospel, the leaders in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to check it out. The report, in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, the son of encouragement, as he was known. We would, he would have been an excellent choice to handle this potentially disruptive situation. We see that Barnabas, when he got to Antioch, was an inspiration to them. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So, true to his name, Barnabas exhorted them all. And when he got there, and after seeing the gospel had actually been received by the Gentiles, Barnabas encouraged them to continue to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And we see that they received Barnabas well, partially because of his integrity. The church at Antioch and the new believers welcomed Barnabas, encouraging words because of who He was to them, for he was, in verse 24, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and a good man of faith. But this is where the other apostle-to-be comes in, the coming of Saul, verses 25 and 26. We see Barnabas go in search of Saul. The revival that he found there in the church of Antioch seemed to be a bigger job than he felt he could handle on his own. And so he went in search of help, verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is one of those things where leadership has to remember what they're capable of. And Barnabas did here. He was obviously more concerned about the church's spiritual growth than he was about being the leader there, as far as the apostles in Jerusalem and the disciples in Jerusalem were concerned, who had sent him, but he was concerned about their spiritual growth. And the son of encouragement had believed in Saul. Remember, he's the one that introduced him to the disciples in Jerusalem in the first place. So he went to Tarsus, Saul's hometown, found him, and brought him to Antioch. And he had a strategy in mind. In fact, he and Saul shared a strategy in verse 26b, It says, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Wow. So he was just assigned for a whole year. He and Saul sat and taught and instructed people from God's word. Nice pastoral staff, don't you think? (laughs) The Apostle Paul and Barnabas. We've got a new pastoral staff coming. 
And we're praying that it's God's man. Let me just take a second to go aside here and, and encourage you to keep your deacons in prayer, your pastoral search committee. They have done some tough, tough work over this last year now, seeking God's will for First Baptist Church and in looking for God's man for the Baptist Church. And it could be that the hardest work they've done is being patient, <laughs> not getting out in front of the Lord, waiting for God to say, okay, here is the man that I've been preparing to come to First Baptist Church. I am just grateful to them for what they have done. So be praying for them as well as be, pray, be praying for Josh and Heather as they are prepared and become prepared to come and be the leaders here. But also, don't forget, they, they have been talking too about an associate at some place down the road. So their work is not done. But be praying for the, the search committee. Be praying for Josh because he'll have a hand in that. And then be praying for yourselves as you receive a new senior pastor. Now, if you remember some earlier lessons we did, Saul spent a number of years in exile in Arabia. And he was being taught there by the Lord. And now he brings all of that that he learned from the Lord to bear with the juvenile or the Gentile juvenile. <laughs> As he brings that to bear with his teaching of the Gentile believers in Antioch. And if you're curious as to what it was he taught them, all you have to do is read his epistles, especially the ones that deal with the body of Christ being God's mystery. It's now revealed in the New Testament, a body that is now Jew and Gentile, <laughs> old and juvenile. <laughs> what can I say? But Saul meets with success there. Read Acts eleven twenty six, the end of that verse. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now the name Christian is believed originally to have been a derogatory nickname that was applied to believers. It meant Christ one. Oh, there goes those Christ people, those Christ ones, those Christians. So what likely became or began as a, a term of derision eventually became a term of endearment, at least among the believers themselves, to be called Christ ones. There's a list that was comprised by Dr. David Jeremiah of a, a lot of the names that Christians were called in the New Testament. They were called believers because they trusted in Christ. They were uh, born again, which meant that they were sons they were disciples because they followed Christ. They were saints because he had called us and declared us holy. Servants because we work for Christ. Brethren because of love of other Christians. Friends because of our fellowship with Christ. His beloved because he loves us. And his heirs because of our future. With him. The word Christian is used only three times in the New Testament. 
here in Acts 11:26, once in Acts 26, verse 28, and in 1 Peter 4, verse 16. And in the first century, it was a focused word used only for those who were disciples of Christ. Now today, unfortunately, the word has lost a lot of its focus. For a long time in America, it was used by cultural commentators just to describe non-Jews, like Gentile was used. Today it's often used to describe non-Muslims. You're either Muslim or you're Christian. Well, we know that that's not really true. Unfortunately, a lot of those to whom the word has been applied don't have any clue who Jesus Christ is. They've never met him, or they have and they've rejected him. Uh, the word may be watered down, but to me it's, it's still a wonderful thing to be called. Uh, Dr. Harry Ironside was a, a great preacher in a bygone generation. You've probably heard the name. He was traveling through China and often heard himself introduced and referred to as Yasu Yan. At first he had no idea what that meant. Harry Ironside just didn't seem to fit with Yasu Yan. Well, finally he asked somebody what it meant. And they said, well, Yasu is the Mandarin word for Jesus. Yan is the Mandarin word for man. So he was introduced as Jesus man. I think I could live with that. Today we're going to hear from Yasu Yan. Jesus man. I can think of no greater compliment. There goes that Yasu Yan. That Jesus man, that Christ one, that Christian. I didn't even mean, mind being called a Jesus freak back in the 70s. I thought that was, that was okay with me, to be identified with Christ. Well, let me move on, see if we can wrap this up. In the last three verses of today's passage are sort of a postscript, a P.S. from Luke. And... It's a postscript regarding the compassion of the Christians in Antioch. First, we see that the prophets came to them from Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. In my interpretation, like the other sign gifts, the gift of prophecy as a means of foretelling the future was a temporary transitional gift that's not offered today. But it was then at the time. Once the canon of scripture was complete, there was no longer a need for God to give direct guidance to the church through the prophets. We had everything he wanted us to hear right here in the Bible. But the other aspect of prophecy, that is forth-telling, not future-telling, but forth-telling, it's kind of like a, a preaching or exhortation that continues today, kind of an if-then statement, if you will. Scripture tells us, or God tells us, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this is what will result. Scripture gives us a lot of that. But the prophets who came from Jerusalem to Antioch came to speak to them about the future. Of, excuse me, of Judea. And specifically they spoke 
a prophecy of famine in verse 28. One of the prophets named Agabus foretold by the Spirit, it says, that a great famine was about to come and it was going to affect the whole world. And he was right. Luke says the famine happened during the reign of Roman Emperor Claudius between 44 and 46 A.D. Later, in Acts 21, Agabus also delivers a prophecy about Paul being handed over to the Gentiles. That prophecy also ultimately was proved to be true. So he was considered to be a true prophet of the Lord. So what? It brings us to the relief efforts of the Christians at Antioch. Verses 29 and 30. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You see here, the fact of the famine just serves to get us to the true point of the story. The Antioch church's relief efforts, sending funds to the believers in Jerusalem because of their needs during the famine. What's incredible about this is the fact that Antioch is the mission church. It's the, it's the church plant. The mother church is in Jerusalem. And yet Antioch takes a special offering to send back to the home church. It would be like the Williams taking a, a special offering in India for the funds to be sent back to the churches that support them. Obviously, we're not one of those churches, but to the churches that support them. That's, that's an incredible act by people who have, obviously, severe needs of their own. Now, these people in Antioch hadn't been Christians for long, but the idea of compassion toward those in need had captured their hearts. As soon as the need was known, they did everything they could to pool the resources and respond to that need in Jerusalem. And then they commissioned Barnabas and Paul to deliver the Antioch offering to the elders in Jerusalem. If, if Sir William Ramsey, a, a historical scholar, had the timeline right, the Antioch church had about two years to raise their funds. He believed Agabus' prophecy was delivered in 44 A.D., the famine came two years later in 46 A.D. Or at least the results in Jerusalem were in effect then. Now, as we close this chapter of Acts, we are seven years now beyond Pentecost. And finally, the word has been planted somewhere beyond Judea and Samaria. So Christ gave his great commission. He said, take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And now it's seven years later, and the word has been planted somewhere in Antioch to the Gentiles. Now, we may seem a little slow for our work for the Lord. Obviously, we're not alone. It was not easy for the first century church to move and make the jump from Jerusalem to the world. In fact, as the book of Acts moves on, the focus in the book shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
the first church that was planted at the ends of the earth, if you will. It became the sending base for the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and their co-laborers. Clearly, the Great Commission was underway. Of course, Jerusalem never lost her importance as the birthplace of the church, as well as being the ongoing base of the the Jewish faith. But the center of the Jewish-Gentile church The mystery that Paul had been commissioned to take to the world was at Antioch. Paul left Antioch on three important evangelistic church planting journeys to the west. And it was to Antioch that he returned. Okay. Why is that important to us? Because we need to understand each of us who is not of Jewish blood, need to be eternally grateful that God extended his offer of the gospel to the Gentiles here. Because most of us in here, if not all of us, are Gentiles. And this is when God included us. It was in his plan, but it's how he included us into his family. We've been incorporated into the the covenant promises of God. No longer spiritual strangers cut off from God, but we have been included. We need to be thankful for that and grateful for that. So let's start, even today, by offering him praise. Praise his holy name. We've tried to do that with music. We do it by opening his word and by studying. We open it by prayer, thanksgiving, thankfulness to him for who he is and what he's done. Thank you, thanking him for his salvation, his grace in offering it to us as well. Can we do that this week? To begin that. We see the way he has provided for us, the way he has led us, We need to pray and be thankful for that. Thankful to our leaders. Thankful for this new young man who's been called, or at least has been invited to candidate before you as your next senior pastor. Be thankful for that. Keep that whole process in prayer as he comes in a couple of weeks. Be thankful for the men who have led you. Be thankful for the God who has offered you salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord, in our culture, some of us have no idea what it really means to not be included. And yet there are some, probably even among us here today, who do know the sting of not being included, of being excluded. Lord, we know, we acknowledge that The nation of Israel was your chosen nation, your chosen people. But we also understand that their chosenness was to take your word, your gospel, to the world. And you have worked miraculously to make that possible. Evil has even tried to exterminate them as a people. And yet you have provided for their protection to keep that from happening. 
Lord, I am thankful that we live in a nation that honors the nation of Israel, that we consider them friends and allies, not just militarily, but as brothers and sisters. Lord, I am thankful that in this story here today that we read from your word, we find how it was that Gentiles were brought to